Again, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 22 through 32. We'll begin reading in verse 21. Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide uh, what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So we all know that when someone is sick or in pain or on their deathbed, it's time for mercy and relief. This is basically a natural law. Thus, we have a host of various different ways to comfort the hurting from pain relief to decongestion, from heat pads to aroma councils, aroma candles, and even hospice care. Indeed, we're actually quite good at easing physical pain. Of course, emotional distress is a whole other matter, and we're not so advanced at that. Well, the ancients didn't have all our modern drugs, but they also carried, cared deeply about comforting the suffering And they had plenty of their own remedies. In fact, Proverbs 31 encourages us of this very thing when it says, give beer to the perishing and wine to the embittered. Yeah, the consoling and supportive value of wine is as old as time. Hence, it should come as no surprise that when our Lord nears his agonizing end, that wine makes an appearance. Yet just as we might expect this liquid solace to serve kindness, it actually ends up amplifying the torment of our Lord as he serves us unto death. So our Lord has left the praetorium after Pilate gave in to the crowd's demands and being cruelly mocked, the Roman soldiers led Jesus out of the governor's headquarters for the long march to be executed. This is the way of the cross, with the heavy being weighing down the the shoulders of Jesus. Though somewhere along the way, the weakness of our Lord slowed his pace too much, so the soldiers forced a bystander named Simon to carry the crossbeam for our Lord, a temporary slave bearing the throne for a nothing king. But now they reach their destination, and they come to the place named Golgotha, which in Greek translates as the place of a skull, and in Latin it translates as Calvary. 
Yet it's not certain where Golgotha is actually located. In the 300s AD, Constantine built a church on the supposed site of Golgotha, but it's likely not accurate, though we're not sure. Either way, we do know that Golgotha was outside the city walls and along a busy road. For Rome deliberately crucified its criminals next to a highway in order to increase its deterrent effect. This way, everyone could see the shameful punishment for the violation of Roman laws. Additionally, it is unclear why this place got its name, Skoll. It might have been because of it was on a small knoll that was shaped like a skull, or maybe because it was the place of death, or maybe it was called this due to the burial places nearby. Nevertheless, we have to admit that the name is haunting Golgotha, place of skull. For nothing quite symbolizes death and its horrors like a skull. Thus, the death of all deaths unfolds on a spot of ground called skull. Though there is one more detail here we learn about Golgotha from the book of Hebrews. There, in chapter 13, we read that Jesus died outside the city gate because this is where the sacrifices for sin were taken to be burned up. Outside the city, the sacrifice was burned to destroy sin itself. Thus, our Lord's demise on Golgotha works and accomplishes the destruction of our sin. Again, as we see, everything unfolds here in accord with God's plan and to accomplish all the various meaningful parts of our redemption. But now that they've made it to Skoll, the soldiers carry out the final bits of preparation to haul Jesus up on the cross. And one of these is to offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. But what's the point of this? Well, we're not sure. Now, it does seem that the soldiers offer the wine and not someone else. But myrrh mixed wine is a bit mysterious. Now, myrrh, as you probably know, is a sap that comes from a bush which was prized in the ancient world as an ingredient in incense for medical uses and its aromatic qualities. And it was most often rather expensive. But putting it in wine is a question mark with several possibilities. First, there is ancient evidence that wine scented with myrrh was a luxury. Well, if this is fancy wine, then it's still part of the parody to mock Jesus. Second, another ancient source remarks that myrrh in wine had a narcotic effect to deaden pain and numb the senses. This wine then could be a mercy or to keep Jesus awake to prolong his suffering. Finally, though, if you add just a bit too much myrrh, it makes the wine undrinkably bitter. So this wine could be nasty wine to increase our Lord's torment. At the end of the day, we're not sure. Nevertheless, Jesus refuses the wine. He will not drink the spiked wine. Why? Well, again, it somewhat depends on the purpose of the offer, but it is still wine 
and wine intoxicates. Wine soothes the nerves and muddies the mind. Now, in the Old Testament, wine was a blessing from God, and it was an everyday drink for the Hebrews. But there is one law that touches on wine. It's found in Leviticus 10, and it's directed only to the priest, and it is kept only as they serve in the tabernacle. And this law forbade the priest from drinking wine or beer on the job. The priest could drink at home when they were off the clock, but no alcohol was allowed them while they served as a priest. Thus, to fulfill all righteousness, as Jesus is in the throes of his priestly work, he will not drink wine. Whether the wine was a mercy or a torment, the Lord will not drink it, so that with a clear mind, he can be our perfect priest. This also fits with what Jesus said at the Last Supper, that he would not drink wine again until he came into his kingdom. Well, presently, Jesus is earning the kingdom, and so it is yet the season of abstinence. As the obedient priest, Christ will taste no wine upon the altar of the cross in the hope that he will drink it again with us. But with the mouth of our Lord left thirsty, next the soldiers divide up his clothes and cast lots to see who gets what. Now, this action fulfills Psalm 22, verse 18, to showcase Jesus as the true righteous and Davidic sufferer. Likewise, taking the criminal's clothes was the norm. It was a type of plundering, a sort of financial bonus for the soldiers. In fact, Rome is basically being a generous employer here by allowing its employees to plunder Christ. Yet it is the result of this holiday bonus that stands out. If the soldiers divide up Christ's clothes, this means he is left naked. Indeed, nude crucifixions were the norm to, in order to stab the soul with further shame. It exposes him as bare and isolates him from the last layer of goodness. As you know, clothes were basically the first grace offered to Adam and Eve. Their sin uncovered their nakedness as shameful and worthy, and so God made them clothes of leather, which itself foreshadowed the work of Christ. Then clothes became a common grace for all humanity to hide our shame and protect us. Well, this first grace given in Genesis is now stripped from our Lord. The entirety of our naked disgrace is laid upon Jesus. Moreover, leaving our Lord bare plunges him into absolute poverty. Even the poorest homeless person still possesses the clothes on their back and the things in their shopping cart. But Christ lost all of this. His personal property hit absolute zero. No land, no storage shed, no trinkets, no coins, and not even a stitch of thread was left to his name. The stuff that we own, our possessions, are kind of like our security blanket, our insurance, our protection. But our Savior lost all of this. 
The soldiers left him nothing, no ring on his finger, and not even his boxers. This is exposure at its worst. The Son of God, who owned all the riches of heaven and earth, became the poorest man who ever lived. And he did it for you. Next, now that Jesus is displayed upon the cross, the soldiers put up the inscription of his crime. Written cheaply on a piece of scrap wood, they scribble, the king of the Jews. Now this signpost both acts as a deterrent and to mock Jesus. All who walked by were warned by this. If you rebel like this man, you will meet his same fate. Likewise, it ridiculed Christ as a vanquished and pathetic king. The power of Rome has squelched and put under its feet this king named Jesus. There is no doubt here who is more powerful. And yet by this inscription, Mark sets up a scene of enthronement. In fact, the soldiers likely intend this to be a parody of enthronement to further belittle Jesus. Thus, Jesus is the king, the cross is his throne, the inscription is the coronation pronouncement, and on either side of this despicable throne hang two more rebels. Now, the word here for robbers can mean either highway robbers or political insurrectionists. It's the same charge that stood against Barabbas, and it's basically what Jesus is charged with. So, the rebel king Jesus is enthroned with his rebel lackeys on his right and left, the two highest positions in any kingdom. Indeed, the highest honors go to the officers on the right and left of the king. Thus, as you'll remember, back in chapter 10, James and John asked for these two chairs. By their competitive piety, the two brothers of Zebedee were quicker than the other apostles to plead for these most glorious offices. James and John thought these positions would be painted in gold and draped in pomp. Well, again, Jesus told them back in chapter 10 that they knew not what they asked for, and it was not for him to bestow the right and left hand chairs, which were for those for whom it had been prepared. Well, now we see the two chosen by God. Who gets the honor of the right hand? Who is blessed with the privilege of the left? Well, it's not a devoted apostle. It's not granted to a faithful lady who followed Jesus. No regal, heroic person is elevated so high. Instead, it goes to two highwaymen. Shameful and disgusting criminals, wretched and guilty sinners flank King Jesus. And the chairs are not velvet and ivory, but rough lumber and iron nails. Reckoned with sinners, enthroned with felons, this is the lifting up of our Savior. But now that Jesus is stretched out high upon a wooden spike, Mark turns our attention to the foot traffic. People are streaming into the city to celebrate the Passover meal this very night. And many of them are not in the mood to be quiet observers. Rather, crude humor is the hymn of the day. 
Thus they fling out slanders and derision at him as if darts upon a board. And they give Jesus a good head-wagging. Now we're not exactly sure what this gesture means. It does show up several times in the Old Testament as a gesture of scorn. Though it may also have connotations of cursing and disgust, it might even be used to ward off evil spirits. The people may be protecting themselves from the demonic in Jesus. Either way, the first course insult they hurl is to laugh at him as temple destroyer and rebuilder. Now, this comes from the false witnesses in the trial before the priest. And even though it was false testimony, there was some truth to it, as you'll remember. And yet, as a jibe, it assumes a miraculous work and one that is ridiculously impossible for Jesus. Excuse me. For there's no way in the, in the universe that Jesus could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, the irony of this verbal abuse is that what they chuckle at as outlandish is precisely what Jesus is doing at the present. <clears throat> Jesus, upon that tree, is laying down the temple of his body And in three days' time, he will rebuild his new temple, not made with hands. What is deemed as an unthinkable miracle is being performed right before their eyes, even though they cannot perceive it. Next, the crowds and the high priest share an insult by calling Jesus to save himself. If he is the Messiah... If he saved others by healing them and by casting out their demons, then surely he ought to be able to save himself. And this taunt expresses several wicked assumptions. First, it presupposes self-love as primary. If you have the power, then it will foremost be used for your own benefit. We always choose ourselves first. Of course, not Jesus here. Second, they take as self-evident that he must prove himself by power, rescuing, delivering himself with a miracle, with a grand display of strength. This is what proper salvation looks like. Thus, this slur connects to the next one. He must save himself by coming down from the cross. Indeed, there's no way that anyone would stay upon the cross willingly. Self-salvation means getting off the cross. The true Messiah wouldn't stay amid all the torment and contempt. The Messiah wouldn't die. He wouldn't let himself be crucified. Indeed, the crowd and the priest think that if you want to keep your life, you have to save it. And yet this is the perverse logic of the world that differs from the pure logic of Christ. For back in chapter 8, he said that whoever would save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for Christ will save it. This is the proper reasoning of the cross. You lose your life in order to save it. And so by staying upon the cross, Jesus is laying down his life 
to win a better one. He saves not himself so that he can save us in his resurrection. Yet the priest insults and taunts are even worse. For now they offer to believe in Jesus if he'll just come down from that tree. Perform the miracle of saving yourself and then we will see it and then we will believe in you. Of course, a faithful, faithless generation asks for a sign. For one, miracles are not given to produce faith. Faith is not the product of miracles. Rather, signs are gifts for faith. The priests completely reverse the role of faith and signs. Two, they link faith to sight. We will see and then we will believe. Yet faith comes not by sight, but by hearing the word. Faith is created in us by the Spirit through listening to the gospel. A demand to see first hails from a hard, an evil heart. Finally, the priests judge Christ's power by only by present appearances. And this is very a very common habit of worldliness. That is, if God does not do what they want right now, then they think that God cannot do it. If God does not comply with their demands in their timing, then something is wrong with God. We've all heard this from the world. They say, if God exists, let him strike me down right now. See, I'm still here. There is no God. If God wants me to believe in him, then let him show himself. But in this way, by a perverse arrogance, they justify their unbelief. But this is twisted. For one, God is not at our beck and call. He is not our servant to jump when we say so. Second, the Lord controls the clock, not us. He operates by his timing which is perfectly wise. What may be slow, fast, or delayed to us is just right for God. Therefore, Jesus will actually come down from that cross. He will come down when he's good and dead. And by remaining on the tree until the shedding of his his last drop of blood, Jesus will save himself and all who believe in him. However, there's one more voice that wants to join the choir of slandering our Savior. The rebels now participate in the scorning as well. Even the criminals who are being executed right next to Jesus mock, insult, and blaspheme him. Now, generally, people stick together when they have something in common. But these felons stiff-arm Jesus and want nothing to do with him. Wretched criminals look down on our Lord as being too shameful for them. This means, then, that Jesus has become totally isolated, rejected by his own people, abandoned by his disciples, denied his legal rights, abused verbally and physically. Jesus has been slowly cut off from all that is good and decent. And now he has been denied all his personal property, 
He was isolated from his clothes, and Jesus is ridiculed by the travelers and priests. And finally, his fellow criminals disown and reject him. In order to be the obedient priest, to become the pure sacrifice, Jesus was banished from all society and relationships. And by his extreme abasement, we see how costly it it was for Jesus to become our Savior. Indeed, we rightly sing and praise God for our free salvation. All of grace, we are redeemed at no cost to us. But just because we pay nothing does not mean our salvation was free. No, eternal life in heaven is the most expensive luxury in the cosmos. Heaven has to be purchased. Your glorification must be earned. And as Jesus sinks lower and lower in abasement and humiliation, this is what our salvation cost him. It is free for us because it cost Jesus everything. He paid with his blood and life. He became impoverished to make you rich. He died naked upon a tree so that you might be clothed in his righteous robes. Jesus drank no wine so that you might drink a new wine in the supper. And Christ is excluded and banished from all society in order to open a door for us to enter the society and communion of heaven. He was isolated on earth so that we might be found near to God in heaven. And this is the word of the gospel that creates faith in you. We need no miracles, no sights, no visions, for we have the infallible and imperishable word. Thus let us give thanks for the humiliation of Christ for us, that he loved us even to stay upon the cross. Thus died, risen and victorious, Jesus Christ is our strength and our song now and forever. Thus may we never cease to sing the song of Christ for his glory and our good. Amen. Let us pray.